Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you again for the purpose of studying God's Word, and we're very thankful for the presence of our visitors tonight. We're happy that you're with us and appreciate your, pres uh, your presence and your interest in the meeting very much. I'd like to turn to the eighth chapter of Romans for our reading tonight. We begin with verse 1 of uh, the eighth chapter of Romans and read the first four verses. I'd like to read then verse 6 and then verses 14 through 18. The Apostle Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And then down in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... They are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together." For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Correctly read, so reads the passage which will introduce our thoughts tonight. I'm going to speak on the theme tonight, Why Be a Christian? I believe in the passages that we have read, the Apostle Paul gives us compelling reasons for being a Christian. But before we go further in this lesson. We certainly feel uh, disposed to call upon God in prayer, to render unto Him the fruit of our lips in praise and thanksgiving, and call upon His all-prevailing name. So at this time, let us humble ourselves while the one selected directs our prayer. We often hear people giving excuses for their failure to become Christians. Aliens blame their disobedience upon ignorance, upon the customs of the day, upon their youth or their old age, as the case may be, upon their position or their occupation in life, upon their fellow men with whom they are in daily contact. And someone has said, he who does amiss never lacks excuse. Unfaithful Christians also give excuses for their failure to live up to the demands of the Lord, and as old Beecher said, it will be with them in the day of judgment when God looks upon them as it is with the frost pictures on a window of a winter morning when the sun looks upon them. They'll melt and be gone with the looking. Now in Romans, the eighth chapter, the Apostle Paul outlines several reasons for being a Christian. And to see these reasons should cause us to desire the blessings that are in Christ. To be reminded of these reasons should prompt the erring child of God to return to the fold. 
the reasons should also move the faithful to gratitude for the great honor and blessing of being a Christian. We want to notice these one by one. I'd like to point out first that the Bible tells us in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now the word condemnation is said to mean the sentence pronounced, condemnation, with a suggestion of the punishment following. Now the punishment, of course, is subjection to God's wrath. I'd like to read from the second chapter of Romans, verses 8 and 9, in which the apostle said, Unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. Again in Romans, the fifth chapter, and verse 9, he said, Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In the third chapter of John, in verse 14, we hear the Savior in his twilight sermon uh, to Nicodemus saying, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Again, men out of Christ have the sentence already declared. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter and verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed in flaming fire with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I wonder if we really understand the meaning of condemnation. What does it mean to be condemned? Now he said there's no condemnation to that person who is in Christ. But what about that person who is not in Christ? What about that person who's never obeyed the gospel? He is under the judgment of God. When Henry VIII of England, who had been a drunkard and a glutton, was lying on his deathbed, we're told that he took a glass of wine and toasted his friends standing around. And he said, my friends, now I have lost everything. My kingdom, my life, my soul. How tragic it is for a man to lose everything because of condemnation. It is unnecessary because there is no condemnation in Christ. There is safety. There used to be an old battered safe, we're told, standing on Broadway in New York City on which was written this notice. It stood the test. The contents were all saved. It had been through one of the hottest fires that New York City had ever seen, and yet it had carried all of its treasures safely through it all. I submit in the same way, if we are in Christ, 
There is no life that is so safe as that life which is in Christ. Now to be in Christ is what he himself has enjoined. He said, you remember in the 15th chapter of John, abide in me. And the New Testament represents Christ's people as in him, found in him, standing in him, walking in him. And uh, after this life, sleeping in him and dead in him. Now under the law, it was different. All had sinned. All were under condemnation, all right. And yet the law could not save. Here's the tragic thing about the Old Testament. The law condemned. The law made man feel guilty. It could not save, however. And it made people realize their sinlessness and their helpless or their sinfulness and their helpful their helplessness. And that's the reason I believe the Apostle Paul, representing himself as the moral man in the book of Romans, cried out in the fifth chapter, and we hear him saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But instantly the light of the glorious gospel broke through, and we hear him saying, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you know that men who have left the truth have the sentence declared? In James the fifth chapter and verse 19, James is writing to members of the body of Christ, to brethren, when he said, Brethren, if any one of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now there's some important things stated here. You see, when a person errs from the truth, he's still our brother. He needs, however, to be converted. You know, when a person errs from the truth, he doesn't need to be ignored. He doesn't need to be fellowshipped. He needs to be converted. He needs to be restored. And he says, brethren, if any one of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner, he's a sinner when he errs from the truth. He's a sinner when he deviates from the law of God. And he said, when he converts the sinner from the error of his way, he shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. And of course, the death that he's talking about there is not the separation of the spirit from the body, but the separation of the soul from God. It's that spiritual death that casting away from God's presence from which we save him. But I'd like to point out also that the Christian has been freed from the law of sin and death. Reading now in verse 2 of Romans, the 8th chapter. Notice what the apostle said. He said, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh... God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Now to determine what is the law of the spirit of life, because whatever that is, he said that hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now in order to determine what the law of the spirit of life is, we have to first determine what the law of sin and death is. 
Now, the death is, as I pointed out a moment ago, spiritual death. Because, you know, when you become a Christian, it doesn't deliver you from physical death. You're going to die whether you're a Christian or whether you're an alien sinner or whether you're a backslider. You're going to die physically. So the person is not delivered from the law of physical death. A person is going to die physically whether he's a Christian or not. Now, the law of sin and death cannot be, as some have supposed, the law of Moses either. Because taking verses 2 and 3 together, we see that the law of Moses could not do what the law of the Spirit had done. So if the law of, the spirit of sin and death is the law of Moses, then we have Paul making the absurd statement that the law of Moses, that is the law of sin and death, could not deliver us from the law of Moses. No, I think that the law of sin and death is simply the law mentioned in Romans 7 and verse 23 when he said, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So the law of sin and death is simply the rule of sin in a person's life. Now sin reigns in the life of a sinner. Romans 6 and 12 said to the Christian, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Now sin dominates the sinner. Romans 6 and 14 said, sin shall not have dominion over you for ye are not under the law but under grace. Now third, the one who habitually sins is the bondservant of sin. Jesus said in John 8 and verse 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. On one occasion Jesus said, Whosoever committeth sin is the bondservant of sin or the slave of sin. Now it will not do for a person to say, Well, you know, when it comes to sin, I can take it or I can leave it. Because Paul says here, sin reigns in that person's life. Sin has dominion over him. He's the bondservant of sin. Sin is a debt. Sin is a burden, a thief. It is described as leprosy, as a plague, as a poison, a serpent, a sting. In fact, everything that man hates, that's what sin is. The whole creation groans, we're told, in the 8th chapter of Romans. And I wonder tonight, can you describe an evil in this world that doesn't come from sin? Can you name a crime that doesn't lie at the door of sin? It is said that an Indian preacher was one time preaching and a young, flippant youth uh, interrupted him in his talk. And he said, you talk about uh, the burden of sin. Why, I feel no burden of sin. And the evangelist said, well, tell me something. If I took a 400-pound weight and placed it on the chest of a corpse, would he feel anything? And the young man said, no, he's dead. And he said, in the same way, that person who feels no burden of sin is also dead. And that's what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2 and 1. You hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses, and sins. We're dealing with people today, folks, who feel no burden 
of sin. We are dealing with people today who have no conscience of sins, who feel no guilt of sins, who have no fear of God. And that's because they are dead in trespasses and sins. And that's the reason, I think, that sin is, does, does not dominate the Christian or reign in his life. Many people believe that Romans 7 describes the child of God. I've even heard uh, some gospel preachers talk about the Jekyll and Hyde theory, that uh, warfare that goes on in the life of a Christian. But I don't believe that describes the child of God in Romans 7. Are we to understand, if it does, that the Christian is carnal, sold under sin, as Paul says in Romans 7 and 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin? Do we understand that describes the life of a Christian? Certainly not. Again, does sin dwell in the child of God? Paul said in Romans 7 and 17, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Does sin dwell in the life of a Christian? Or is it just possible that the Apostle Paul is describing himself as a moral man under the law? You know, I firmly believe that's the case. Instead of describing his life as a Christian, I believe that Paul is casting himself in the role, as it were, as a moral man under the law, who knew what God's law was, who realized his guilt under the law, and yet was unable to receive forgiveness for that law, from that law. And uh, Paul affirms the opposite of a Christian. He said in Romans 6 and 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now listen to Paul's conclusion. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Did you notice the phrases that Paul uses there? Freed from sin, dead indeed unto sin. Let not sin therefore reign. And so I submit this evening that unless a Christian is just a habitual sinner, and cares nothing about his spiritual condition, sin does not dwell in him. Now sin may come into his life, but it doesn't take up residence there. I used to say that when I left home, it might be that a burglar would come into my house, but I promise you he doesn't take up residence there. At least when I get home, he's not going to live in my house. He comes in as an interloper, as an uninvited person, an intruder, and he doesn't dwell there. In the same way, a Christian may commit a sin, but the Christian knows what to do if he does commit a sin. 
Now that doesn't mean that the Christian claims sinless perfection. John said in 1 John, uh, the first chapter in verse 8, uh, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, let me tell you the basic difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian does not let sin control his life. That's the basic difference. No, there is no condemnation and he is freed from the law of sin and death. But then the Christian is also blessed with life and peace. Notice verse 6 that we read a moment ago. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The Christian has that abundant life. You know, Jesus said in the 10th chapter of John, he said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. It's that abundant life that Jesus came to bring. The Christian also lives with purpose. I see so many people on this earth who seem to have no purpose in life. It seems like that they're just aimlessly wandering through this life with no goal, no purpose. I believe the reason the Apostle Paul was so successful in his life was because he had an all-consuming purpose. And he boldly stated that he had counted all things as loss for Christ. He turned his life upon the, uh, uh, his back upon the life that he had planned and never looked back. And I think that every Christian has to come to that point in life where we determine that we're going to make heaven our home. We're going to win the handsome reward. And no matter of the obstacles that are in our way, no matter the temptations that are thrown in our path, we have a goal, an all-consuming purpose to make heaven our home. Many years ago, a missionary spoke to his uh, Indian friends up north of consecration to Jesus, of commitment to the Lord. And as he preached, the old Indian chief stepped forward and laid his uh, tomahawk at the feet of the preacher. And he said, Indian chief, give his tomahawk to Christ. Still, the preacher pressed his claims. And again, the old Indian chief rose up and took his blanket and laid it at the feet of the missionary. And he said, Indian chief, give his blanket uh, to Jesus Christ. But still, the preacher pressed his claims of commitment, consecration to Christ. The old Indian chief walked out into, the, into a clearing and came back leading his pony and he said, Indian chief, give his pony to Jesus Christ. And still the preacher preached. And finally the light broke through and he stepped forward and said, Indian chief, give himself to Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans the 12th chapter and verse 1. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Yes, that purpose goads us on and impels us toward that goal. But also the Christian lives with hope. He has hope, and that hope is the one hope of the New Testament. Titus 1 and 2, Paul said, in hope of eternal life, 
which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. How wonderful to have hope. I do not understand how it is that people can look a loved one in the face at death and realize they have no hope of ever seeing that person again in this world and how they can bear that. How terrible it would be to have no hope. And yet there are many people who have no hope. The Apostle Paul spoke in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, and he said, uh, Sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Some people have no hope, but we have that hope of Christ. Grinnell said, Hope is the handkerchief that God puts into his people's hands to wipe the tears from their eyes which their present troubles and long stay of expected mercies draw from them. But also the Christian lives with confidence. The Christian trusts in the one who's never failed and who is able to make good come out of bad circumstances. A young man confided to a friend one time that he was worried and anxious about his soul. And the friend asked, well, did you ever learn to float? And the young man said, well, yes, I finally did. He said, I couldn't at first because I didn't believe that the water would hold me up. And so I always began to struggle and then I would go under. And he said, I finally found out that I just had to give up the struggle and uh, rest on the strength of the water to bear me up. And he said, after that, it was easy. And the friend paused for a moment and then he asked this question. Isn't God's word more worthy of your trust than the changeable sea? And the answer to that is yes. We can trust in God. The Christian lives with confidence in God's promises. But also he lives with joy. How wonderful it is to have joy in life. The angel who appeared to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born gave them this message, Fear not, for I bring you tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. This joy that I'm talking about is not the hilarity of the world, but it's a deep-seated joy of faith. The joy of this world is fleeting, passing, ephemeral, but the joy of a Christian is abiding. It is said that a man one time applied to a rationalistic, unbelieving preacher for comfort and peace of conscience. And the preacher said to him, Oh, forget about those things. Go out and see and hear that famous comedian which is now playing in our city and keeping his audience in a constant roar. That man will dispel these morbid broodings of yours. And the visitor lowered his head for a moment and then groaned and said, I am that comedian. You know, I think so shallow and artificial is the joy of this world that many a man's heart is bleeding and breaking while his lips are made to laugh. But the joy that Christ gives is lasting. But I want to mention also the Christian lives with peace. He has made peace with God. In Romans 5 and 1, Paul said, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has that peace that passeth understanding that Paul mentions in Philippians 4, 7, when he said, 
The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. The peace of God rules in his heart. Paul said in Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. How wonderful to have peace. Remember reading uh, Brother Foy Wallace, who had a, a different view of the Beatitudes. You know, so many times I've been in homes, and maybe they have a little plaque on the wall of the Beatitudes that are mentioned in the, uh, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of those uh, Beatitudes speaks of, uh, of this peace. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Brother Wallace preached a sermon that he called a preview of the gospel. And he showed that each one of those Beatitudes has to do with some feature of the Christian life and the gospel. And uh, he called it a preview of the gospel. Well, when we make peace with God, you see, that's a peacemaker. That's what he's talking about. And then when, you're peace, when you have peace with God, you're a child of God. He's not talking about arbitration between brethren or between neighbors or friends or between labor and capital. He's talking about making peace with God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We have peace through Christ. A few years, in fact, about, I guess, 30 years ago or so, I lived in Fort Worth, Texas. And one Sunday afternoon, I had seen a little old singing advertised at a non-denominational church. And so I thought, well, I'll go over there and just sit and listen. And I did. And it was about what you would expect to hear, little trios and, and duets and solos. And finally a man got up and strapped on an accordion and uh, sang a song. And uh, the words of that song uh, stayed in my mind. And I finally found the song and asked Brother Linwood Smith to put it in one of our song books. And that song said, this song by Ike Davis, Though the world all around be raging and it's filled with many alarms, trust in Jesus and he will keep you in the shelter of his arms. There's peace in the time of trouble. There's peace in the midst of the storm. There is peace though the world be raging in the shelter of his arms. Isn't that a beautiful thought that even though around us there may be chaos and confusion, there may be death and disappointment, but when we're in Christ, we have that peace that if all else fails, if all of our dreams come to, to dust, if all that we cherish and hope for comes to naught, we have peace with God, and we have the hope that when this life is over, we'll be with Him, with all the redeemed of all ages. But I want to mention also, and lastly, the Christian is a child of God. In Romans, the 8th chapter, in verse 14, he said, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself, and that should be Himself, because the Holy Spirit is a person. The Spirit Himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children... 
than heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now our question this evening is, how can we know whether or not we are children of God? Well, Paul answers that question. He says, the Spirit of God beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I made a statement one time that we can know whether or not we're children of God. And I realize that's, that's in an accommodated sen accommodative sense because the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. So it's not by experiential means that we know that we're children of God. No, the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit. Let me show you how that works. Notice what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says, uh, if you believe that I'm he, if you believe not that I'm he, you shall die in your sins. And then he says that he that believeth in me is not condemned, and so forth. So the Spirit says that we have to believe. Now when I believe, that's what the Spirit bears witness of me that I've done that. But look at here. The Spirit also commands us to repent. Luke 13 and 3, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. When I repent, that's the Spirit of God bearing witness not to, but with my Spirit that I have done that. The confession of Christ, Matthew 10 and 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. Uh, now when I confess Christ, look here, that's the Spirit of God bearing witness with my spirit that I've done that. Look here also, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what the Spirit recorded. Now when I'm baptized, look here, that's the Spirit of God bearing with my spirit. What does it say? That I'm saved. What happens to save people? Well, the Bible says in Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And uh, the Bible says further that uh, we are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So since I have come into Christ, I am a new creature, the Spirit says. Again, in 2 Peter 2 and 2, Peter said, as newborn babes, Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. I become a new creature in Christ. And Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. That's how the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I like to point out that God's children are also heirs of God. Peter described the inheritance in 1 Peter, the first chapter in verse 3, when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen now. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I was studying with some people one time. I think it may have been down in uh, uh, Medill, Oklahoma, or somewhere down, uh, down Highway 70 in Oklahoma, and uh, they said that they told me that if they lived anywhere in uh, eternity, that it would be right here on this earth. They said, why the Lord has nowhere given us a promise of heaven. I said, well, you are wrong about that. What about this passage here in 1 Peter, the uh, first chapter, 
and uh, verse 4. And I read that, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. They drew a circle around that past scripture said, we're going to have to study that. I said, well, there's no studying to it. You just take it for what it says. You know, if you, if you don't get that inheritance that the Lord has for you, whose fault is that? Why, it's your fault, isn't it? The Lord has it for you, and uh, it's reserved for those who have obeyed the gospel and who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Man is going to one day leave this earth. Jesus uh, imparted that when he said, I must work the works of him that sent me, for night soon cometh when no man can work. Hebrews 9 and 27 said, It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. God's children are going to go home to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter and verse 8, Paul said, We're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Doesn't that appeal to your soul tonight? To be present with the Lord. To have that hope that uh, the person of the redeemed will enjoy. I want to ask you in closing tonight. Are you in Christ? By that I mean have you ever taken the steps right here that will put you into Christ? Are you in his body? The church. Let me point out that in him is the only place of safety. Back yonder when that great flood submerged the whole earth, there was only one place of safety and that was in the ark. Back yonder when that terrible drought hit the land of Palestine and over all of that part of the country, there was only one man to whom they could go for corn and that was to Joseph in Egypt. There was only one way to keep off the death stroke that passed through Egypt on the night of the Passover, slaying all of the firstborn uh, all over the land. And that was through the blood that was put upon the lintels and doorposts of the house. There's only one name in which there's salvation, and that name is through Christ. Jesus, the apostle Peter said, there's none of the name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Yes, that one is Jesus in whom Paul said, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Can you afford not to become a Christian? Will you accept the responsibilities of a Christian and enjoy the blessings inherent therein, both now and eternally? If you would, I'd like to see you walk right down the aisle tonight, turning away from all known sin, Believing in Jesus with all of your heart. Making that good confession. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And being immersed in water for the remission of sins in the name of the sacred three. And all of that is not to join some denomination. But to obey the gospel. Obey the commands of God and be saved upon his terms. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m.
please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.